We're going to be this morning in Isaiah chapter 5. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 5, and uh, we won't go to the text right away, but we will be there momentarily. Years ago, Rena and I and the kids, when I was uh, pastoring in North Carolina, uh, we built a house on a few acres that we had up in the mountains. In fact, one of the reasons we kind of moved back to Marietta is we kind of wanted to feel uh, a little bit closer to the mountains. Uh, it was partly to get closer to, to Gateway as well. But we loved uh, that time in our lives, living about 30 minutes uh, up the road from here. And we were really excited about having this land where we could work with our hands, and we been, had been talking about putting in a garden for a long time. And so finally, the time came when we had the house there, we had the property, and we could put in this garden. Because every summer, in the summertime, people in the church would bring the surplus from their gardens, and they would just set it out on the back counter for the taking. And I admire them, and I admire some of you I've met who can make these great gardens and, and just turn out this incredible produce, these big, juicy tomatoes and fat ears of ripened corn and zucchini and peppers and beans and watermelon. And I'm like, okay, I can do that, you know. So besides all of the mouth-watering fruits and vegetables, I was th- talking to my wife, thinking about all the money that we would save on groceries. And we can have vegetable meals every night right out of the garden. Well, I was told because of the location of the, the property we had in the mountains, a lot of uh, copper and quartz and that kind of stuff in the ground, that I, I needed to do some raised beds. So I went out and bought a lot, uh, spent a lot of money on pressure-treated lumber and made these uh, eight-by-six uh, raised beds several, uh, maybe like a, a couple feet high, and filled them with dirt. Well, then somebody came along and said, you can't just fill that with the dirt, you know, that you have there on the, on the ground. You've got to put in some ingredients into that soil. So I went out to one of the local hardware mega malls and came home with these giant bales of peat moss and bags of fertilizer and bags of lime and, and mixed all of it together. And then a few weeks later, Rena came home and she had purchased these little tomato plants and different varieties of vegetable seeds, and we were in business. We had spent about $400 so far, but I was like, think about the $200 we're going to save this summer, you know, on, on vegetables. It's kind of like some of you guys when you go out hunting, you know, and you're like, I'm, I'm always like, is that worth it? But apparently it's worth it. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that later. But uh, I was imagining these tall stalks of sweet corn and thick tomato vines laden with large tomatoes and coming to church and putting our first fruits out on the counter there for people to look at and to share. And, and to make a long story short, our garden was not the fabled horn of plenty that you see around Thanksgiving time. We did produce a few good cherry tomatoes, and I think we got a few yellow squash out of the deal, but um, the rest of it was just pitiful. We could not get anything to grow. And because the garden was so unsuccessful, you know, finally I was like, that's it. I, I gave up on it. We stopped going out and checking every day, and eventually it grew up into sort of this gangly, overgrown mess of large, healthy weeds <laughs> and uh, little scraggly plants on the side of this property, and it would just sat there sort of forgotten. You know, there's a similar experience 
in the pages of Scripture that we're looking at. In fact, it's actually a song about all the work that goes into a garden, a song that Isaiah sings to the nation of Judah. And Isaiah's audience, I think, would never have identified with my lack of gardening skill because they were an agrarian culture living about the 8th century BC and Judah and her sister Israel to the north, they knew how to make things grow from the earth. Wheat, barley, uh, varieties of vegetables, olives, figs, dates, and grapes. And their economy was built upon making things grow out of the earth. So when Isaiah begins to sing a song to the people of Judah about one who had planted a vineyard, they readily identified it, identified with it. The song is right here in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. I want to convey to you this morning, uh, I wish I could anyway, the, the sheer beauty of the poetry that is, a pre- that is present in the Hebrew original language of these verses. The, the rhythms and the alliteration and the assonance and the word order and everything is exceptional. It's one of the reasons Isaiah is considered one of the most literary of all the prophets in the Old Testament. And so in this beautiful piece of art, it would have attracted the attention of Isaiah's listeners and they would have been drawn into the text. And Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, that is good grapes, big, luscious, juicy grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. I want to pause here for just a second. Because it is at this point in the song that the last line you read there, it brought forth wild grapes. This is the point at which Isaiah's audience suddenly realizes that this is not going to be some happy song. It's going to be a song of disappointment. Up until now, the beloved that Isaiah is singing about has done everything needed to plant a vineyard. In fact, the kinds of activities that he mentions in the song are the same kind that have been done in that part of the world for thousands of years to make a vineyard. He situated the vineyard on a fertile hill. That's a, a hill with good, rich soil where there was plenty of sunlight. Grapes in Israel were often grown on the hillsides where there were terraces made for them. In verse 2, notice the beloved took time to dig out all of the stones. That's a common feature in that part of the world. Digging out the stones would make the soil friendly for growth. The roots could go down deep and the, and the plants could go up t- grow up tall. And he selected choice vines, notice, which indicates that he chose cultured plants that would produce rich grapes with small seeds and high sugar content, perfect for making the good quality wine. He built a watchtower in the middle of it so he could protect it from predators. Making a quality vineyard was a lot of work, and an owner would take efforts to protect his investment from animals or birds or even from theft. And he built a wine vat in it, a wine press. 
This shows he was expecting an abundant harvest of good, usable grapes. In fact, the trouble it would have been to construct a wine press represents a sizable investment and a great effort. This is the kind of wine press that was hewn out of limestone, the kind he's talking about here. And you should also know that when someone planted a vineyard, there was a considerable amount of time before the first harvest, years sometimes, in fact. And so such a venture represents a lot of planning and investment and expectation. And all of these elements that I'm talking about here are common knowledge in the minds of Isaiah's listeners. They would have recognized that the beloved in the song had done everything that was needed to have a wonderful harvest and a happy return on the investment of time and energy and resources. So you can imagine the irony of this song and the disappointment in the song when the conclusion is not what is expected. Because instead of luscious, hearty, rich fruit, the vineyard produced only wild grapes. And that means sour, bitter, unusable grapes, grapes which were basically good for nothing. So now the song shifts to a new scene. Now the beloved himself is speaking. And the scene of the vineyard turns to the scene of a law court where the beloved is pleading his case and God's people are asked to listen and discern and help judgment to be passed. So he says, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And this rhetorical question is born out of frustration. And it anticipates the answer, nothing. There is nothing more you could have done for the vineyard. The vineyard had every chance to produce a wonderful harvest and the people of Judah would have recognized that. So the beloved is justified in taking the action he's about to take. It says in verse five, and now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Now, when Isaiah's audience hears that the beloved is the one who controls the weather, they realize at this moment in the song that Isaiah is not just singing about any particular beloved and his vineyard. He's talking about the Lord God of heaven. And it dawns upon them that this beautifully crafted song is about them. Isaiah brings home then the truth of the metaphor that he has woven in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel's God is a heavenly vine dresser, and he has done everything imaginable for his people, Israel. He brought them to a fertile land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he led David to establish the city of Jerusalem with its Acropolis, Mount Zion, sometimes affectionately referred to as the Holy Hill or the Hill of the Lord 
upon which David's son Solomon built this great temple. And he gave them a law that they could use to express their devotion to the Lord and to know his great blessing. And he promised that if they would simply obey him, if they would walk in his ways, they would be fruitful in the land. They would be protected from their enemies. But after centuries since their delivery from Egypt, in which the Lord demonstrated his fidelity to them time after time, the men and women of the tribe of Judah, the small nation that had broken off from the rest of Israel, the remnant for David's sake, were not walking with all their hearts after God. And the 10 remaining tribes to the north, Israel proper, had not followed the Lord since the days of Solomon. In fact, if we were to read the rest of the chapter, we would see that it details, among other things, the sins of the nation, the deceit, the drunken revelry, the pride, the oppression of the people, the utter lack of discernment, corrupt justice. They had abandoned their faithfulness of the covenant that God had made with them, even though they, he had given them every opportunity. And we don't know why for sure, but it is likely that, uh, we, we, we don't know this for sure, but it's likely that Isaiah may have been singing this song as part of the celebration after the vineyard harvest, when everyone was singing their songs, celebrating God's goodness to the land. So people are expecting a joyful song, but instead they hear a song designed to convict hearts who are not walking after their God. And Isaiah's audience is drawn into the song and they have to pass judgment upon the vineyard only to realize that they have just passed judgment upon themselves. So this is a masterful song. It, it reminds me of what the prophet Nathan does, remember, when he comes to David and tells the story of the servant's one precious lamb that the, the man who owned all these flocks took and killed so that he could have a meal for his guests. And it raised the righteous indignation of David who declared, surely that man is going to die right before Nathan points the finger at David and says, you, O king, are the man. And even as David fell under conviction and cried out for mercy when he recognized his sin, Isaiah is trusting for the same kind of response from the people when the truth of this song strikes home. Now, we're here 2,800 years removed from this original prophecy. And we're not Israel. None of us are even Jewish, as far as I know. If you are, let me know afterwards. I'd love to know. But the Messiah, whom Isaiah would go on to prophesy, some of the most wonderful messianic prophecies in the scripture, would not even come for about 800 years. He would come to rescue his people from this spiritual darkness, but his coming is off, uh, is coming in the future still. And in his name... And on the basis of his death for our sins and his resurrection and because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are gathered this morning looking back on the coming of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, I wonder if this song still holds instruction and encouragement and even rebuke for us this morning as we ask the Lord to use these words to shepherd us. I think, in fact, it does because we serve the same God who loves his people and we, like ancient Israel, are still prone to wander. I'm suggesting here this morning that 
Isaiah's song offers some remarkable parallels between God's relationship with Israel and the relationship that we have with our God as his church. And, and that this can instruct us and rebuke us and encourage us. So what are these parallels? That's what I want to deal with this morning. First of all, I'm going to give you three of them this morning. First of all, I see this parallel. God has given us everything we need to be fruitful believers. He has given us everything we need to be fruitful believers. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, if you have recognized your need for forgiveness from your holy creator and have trusted in Christ's death for your sins and his resurrection, it is because God has given you everything you need to not only become his child, but to walk with him by faith. And to see the fruit of that relationship that you share with him growing in your life. In fact, this is exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, right? His divine power has granted to us all things, that is everything we need to, that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We can easily relate with what God did for his people in Isaiah 5, with what God does for us as his people today. God the beloved placed his vineyard on a very fertile hill. In other words, he placed his vineyard where it would have rich nourishment. And this is what God does for us by giving us his divine word that enriches us and nourishes us as we read it and as we yield to it. Jesus himself affirmed that people cannot have their physical nourishment by bread alone, right? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In fact, there are so many different ways that the Bible teaches us that as food is to the body, the word of God is to the spiritual life of the believer. It is not only bread in the words of Jesus, it is also milk in 1 Peter 2, 2. It is meat in 1 Corinthians 3, 2. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight to my heart. Psalm 119, 103 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The word of God that we have available to us 24-7. Unlike the people we heard about this morning in the Muslim cultures, whom some of them have never even seen a copy of the Word of God, who their own Quran tells them that the Word of God is corrupt. The Word of God nourishes our souls. It's a rich source of nutrients that produces spiritual life. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, nourishing for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, God's very word is profitable. It's nourishing for teaching in righteousness. It teaches us what is right. And it's for... It's, it's profitable for reproof in righteousness. It rebukes us when we're not right. And it's profitable for correction in righteousness. It tells us how to get right. 
And for training in righteousness, it tells us how to stay right. And the impact of the nourishment of the word of God completes me, equips me for every good work. We come to God by faith in the word of the gospel to begin with, and then we continue to live by faith in the word, which grows and nourishes us and makes us fruitful. And I'll tell you what, some of you may have had the experience of, of becoming, uh, coming to Jesus Christ and you were just growing by leaps and bounds because you were reading the word all the time. But we can get so distracted from what is the most important thing in our life, the nourishment of the word of God, that we can look at our lives week to week and say, have I really spent the time in the word of God that I need to? And we wonder why we stop growing, why we start having certain things come up in our lives where God is having to work not through us, but on us. And I wonder sometimes if it isn't just that we need to get back to really being committed to the nourishment of the word of God. But there's another uh, need that God has already taken care of that allows us to have a fruitful spiritual life. I'd like to refer to this this morning as ability. He has given us the ability to grow and he's done this by removing every hindrance to our growth. Isaiah says that the beloved dug out the vineyard and cleared it of stones. Remember how Jesus said in his parable of the seeds that some seeds fell on stony ground? And remember what happened? A plant sprang up from those seeds that fell on the stony ground, but the roots couldn't get at the soil because of the stones. And so when the sun arose, the plant was scorched in the heat of the sun because it could not, the, the plant could not draw the nutrients from the soil. And this is why the beloved clears away the stones. He's taking away any hindrance, any barrier that might stand in the way of the roots getting down into the nourishment of that soil. Think of all that God has taken away through Jesus Christ to allow us to flourish as our children, as his children. He, he's taken away our sin. Hebrews 9.26 says, He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's taken away our sin. He's taken away, he's taken away our guilt. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified, we are declared righteous, not guilty, but righteous. When the gavel of the courtroom of heaven comes down, we are declared not guilty as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's taken away our guilt. He's taken away our enmity. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that we were enemies of God outside of Christ. He's taken away our enmity and made us those who are at peace with him. He's also taken away his wrath. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a wonderful $4 theological word, uh, which means the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. God has to take his wrath out on sin. And yet Christ became the bearer of that wrath. He satisfied God's wrath on sin. He took away God's wrath. He's taken away our punishment. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's taken away the barrier to himself. As unholy sinners, we are, we are necessarily held at arm's length from God's holiness because we had no right to approach him. But now as a believer, we are invited to come any time to him, to be welcomed by him. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, not at a distance, but near it, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's taken away the barrier to himself. He's taken away our defeat. Before we came to Christ, we were subject to the defeat of the enemy, Satan, his work of sin in the world. But now, as John assures us in John 4, 4, greater is he, or 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. That is a wonderful promise from God. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He's taken away that defeat. There are so many more ways that the Lord has removed every barrier. He's removed our blindness. He's removed our weakness. He has not only given us rich nourishment, he has removed every reason that we should not be able to access that nourishment. But there's even more. Isaiah says that the beloved planted the vineyard with choice vines. I'm not trying to spiritualize this text, by the way. I'm just trying to say, here's uh, some great parallels that we see in the New Testament. And when I, when I read and study this idea of the choice vines, these are the precious vines that the beloved would have planted so that he would have a supreme fruit. And this is the kind of person that God transforms us into by the Holy Spirit who places us into Jesus Christ. We are not a choice vineyard in ourselves. We are now, though, because of who Christ is. And he dwells within us through the ministry of the Spirit. In fact, what did Jesus tell his disciples in John 15? He says, I am the vine. He tells them in John 15, 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our lives can be like a flourishing, fruitful vineyard because we derive our life from Jesus Christ so that what is true of him is now true of us. The father loves the son and so therefore he loves us. Jesus Christ, Romans 6 says, rose from the dead never to die again. Guess why we have eternal life? Because we are in Jesus Christ and we will live forever because he lives forever. We can walk with God and please God because Jesus Christ pleases the Father and we share that life with him. We're united with him through the Spirit. And this is the reason when we are nourished by the word of God in the ability that God has given to us that the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us. You read all the fruit of the Spirit in the New Testament. It is what Jesus Christ demonstrates to us in the Gospels. You see, when we live in a way that pleases God, it's not even our fruit. They are not our spiritual, spiritual virtues and works. They are His. They are Jesus Christ's. And I wish we could spend more time probing those parallels. But I want to point out two more. Isaiah says that the beloved built a watchtower in the middle of the vineyard. That's for the purpose of guarding and protecting the vineyard that he loves. But it also reminds us of the promise of the presence of the protector of the vineyard. Jesus promises in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 reminds us that God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? God doesn't provide all of this for us because he's going to drop us off somewhere like they do, you know, when you're training for the special forces and they say, well, you know, we hope you survive. We hope you see you someday. The Lord is with us every step of the way. He's guarding us. He's guiding us with his presence. And also, just as the beloved hewed out a wine vat because he expected an abundant harvest, so the Lord has great confidence that we will bear fruit as his children, that we will reach the end of the journey perfected, holy, beautiful, because he is doing the work. He is doing the work. And that is why so often at the end of our worship service, we go out with the words of the Lord's promise in our ears, like 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. This is not a cliche. It's not an understatement. We could go on for hours. We could discuss for hours all that God has done for us in saving us and sanctifying us. Think about all that he has provided, all that he has given to us that we could have never done for ourselves. So when verse 2 finishes up with the statement that instead of good, luscious, healthy grapes, the vineyard brought forth wild grapes, this is a moral travesty. And God is fully right to say in an exasperated tone, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it uh, yield wild grapes? What other provision could God have made that he did not give to us? He has given us everything we need to be fruitful. And yet here we find a second parallel. And it is this. It is still possible for us to produce bitter fruit. I don't know where my number one went to, by the way. I mean, it's just disappeared and I have no explanation for it. So if that bothers you, just so you know, it's bothering me too. Uh, But this is the second point. You can tell because that's point two uh, there. uh, It is possible for us to produce bitter fruit. Now, why is that? I mean, think about it for a minute. Have you ever thought about this much? Why is it so possible for us to sin? After all that God has done to make our spiritual life flourish, all of the preparation, all of the provision, all of the promises. Why do you and I still disobey him? Why do we sometimes go down wrong paths? Why do we sometimes say no to God? Or actually, you know what it is? Oftentimes we don't say no to God. We don't like to think of ourselves as saying no to him. We just don't say yes to him. We just sort of ignore or push to the side what he wants us to do. We could look at some long and rather complicated answers to those questions, but it really all comes down to one thing, and that is we still sin because we want to sin. We want to. We might try to blame our sin on the devil or some influence outside of ourselves that is coercing us to sin. We might try to blame the environment. 
I mean, look at our wicked world. It's getting wickeder by the day, right? It's getting worse all the time. Look at the sinful world in which we live. As if the early believers who grew and thrived in the first century didn't have a wicked world to live in. But that is no excuse anyway, because you know what? Paul says in Galatians 1.4, he says that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age. If we're in Christ, we're delivered from this age. I mean, how can we go and share the gospel with people and say God can rescue you, God can, can transform you if, if, if they don't have power over the world? It's not the fault of the world around us that we sin. Didn't Adam and Eve have a perfect environment? And yet when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. As James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That is the dirty secret that we don't want to admit. We sin because we want to. We desire it. The scripture says so. And the answer to that wrong desire is to stop desiring sin. That is to start hating it instead and to start desiring the right thing in its place. Do you know that you cannot love sin and love holiness at the same time? The problem with our sin is a love problem. We don't love the Lord and all that he did for us to save us and to make us fruitful more than we love something else. That was Israel's problem. And that is the problem that we still face today. But there's another parallel between this song to ancient Israel and us today, and that is this. God is right to discipline the unfruitful vineyard. He has every right to do that. In verse 5, God himself says, and now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. And then he says, I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And this is in a metaphorical sense exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. It's what happened to Judah and Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar and his army came to destroy the city and to carry off the inhabitants who were survivors to Babylon. God did not personally destroy the city. He removed its hedge and its wall. He let the enemy in. And after that, the city lay empty and the land of Judah lay fallow for 70 years while the citizens went into captivity far away. And God apparently sent a drought upon the land so that the land dried up and no fruit would grow. Now, God was not done with the nation because they were his chosen ones. He was not destroying them. He was not annihilating them. He was chastening them. They were still precious to him. In fact, in the last verse of this song, we see God's love through the judgment and his anticipation of their future obedience. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Israel is his vineyard. It belongs to him. He says, the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. That's a remarkable phrase. 
It means that the men of Judah were God's delight. It's the kind of word that you would use for like a parents who delight in their children. And so God looked for justice. He was expecting justice in the land. He wanted to see that the people were being cared for and ruled over by righteous people because he had given them so much. And he looked for righteousness. And, and here the people were being, uh, you know, that they were being treated rightly and righteousness was flourishing in the land. Those are the kinds of things you would expect from the child that you would try to give every opportunity So this chastening of the nation is not an indication of the absence of God's love for them. But the chastening is a loving discipline designed to teach them. In fact, especially in the second half of the book of Isaiah, God holds out great hope for the people after the chastening has ended. The second half of the book of Isaiah opens with the words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This this city who hasn't even gone into judgment yet in Isaiah's day, but it's going to happen. Speak tenderly to them and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. And it is the same for us when we wander from the Lord. God has every right to, to punish us, to discipline us, but he disciplines us as children. I love the way the author of Hebrews speaks of this discipline. I think it's one of my most favorite passages in the scripture, at least on this subject. He says in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This exhortation he's talking about is in Proverbs chapter 3. Have you forgotten that exhortation? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. When we wander off the path, and we've had this experience, I think probably many of us, where we know we are not doing right and God disciplines us. He convicts us. He does something to bring us back to the path. Don't be weary of that because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. When God is doing this, it's not evidence that he's angry at us. It's evidence that he loves us. And he chastens, he chastises every son whom he receives. The fact that God deals with this this way is actually evidence that we actually belong to him. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You're not sons. If you don't have discipline in your life, you don't belong to God. This is the normal thing God does to us because he loves us. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all disciplines seem painful rather than pleasant. Nobody likes to go through discipline. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, those who stay under it. Do you know what the Lord does when he chastens us? He's pruning. He's training. He's leading us back into blessing. 
He wants us to remember all the things that he has done to prepare the way for us to know him and to love him, to rely on his strength. The fact that he has given in Christ to us everything we need to live a spiritual life in godliness. These are lessons from the vineyard in Isaiah's song. The encouraging reminder of all that God has done for us because he loves us. The warning that even though he has given us everything, we need to be careful. We can still go off the path into sin. And the admonition to respond to his chastening and to return and live in the grace of all that he has given to us to flourish once more. And this we will do through his strength if we commit ourselves every day humbly by faith to know him and to follow his word. I don't know where any of you are right now on this path, whether you're right now just basking in the blessings of God, praising him for victory, or maybe there's a a time you're going through in your life, life right now where you're thinking to yourself, I know I'm not doing what God wants right now. Let him discipline you back to the path. The most wonderful thing we can know is his blessing that he's completely given to us freely in Christ. And we will be a light to the world. And we know that we are living in that blessing. Father, thank you.